This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review issues of reprint comics from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. For my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it after allocating the overhead to the number of underlying issues included. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 163rd episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Spider-Man Magazine, number one, from Marvel Comics, cover dated October 1994. But first, a little feedback. On last episode, we covered a Blue Christmas Tale starring The Ray and podcasting's Michael Bailey wrote in. Professor Allen, season's greetings. I guess technically we're always in a season, so all greetings are technically seasonal. Hmm, that sounds like an important message for 2021, Michael. Michael says he bought the entire Ray series back in 1996. I started reading the book two months before it was canceled because my timing is always spectacular. The miniseries is different from the ongoing, but that had a lot to do with the differences between Jack C. Harris and Christopher Priest as writers. The only thing I truly objected to about the series was how much of a jerk Priest made the original Ray. Well, that would irritate me as well. Priest was also writing Justice League Task Force around this time, And if you come across his issues, I recommend getting them. It was a far better book than it deserved to be. Vandal Savage was a thing in that title. So the books complement each other. The Ray fit into two interesting trends DC was doing circa 1992 to 1996. They launched a handful of books in 1992 based on the quality characters that were of varying quality. I got trapped in my own syntax there, Michael explains. Anyway, the Ray was also a young hero at a time when DC was introducing a bunch of young characters. It's amazing that it took them so long to start teaming them up in Young Justice, but it made for an interesting subset in the DCU. Great episode as always. A very Merry Christmas to you and yours. Podcastings, Michael Bailey. Thank you, Mike. I hope all the Baileys be they of the two-legged or four-legged variety, have uh, the best 2021 possible. And you know, I think that Vandal Savage is one of those characters that it took a number of decades for writers to figure out the implications of. But once they started to dig into the, this guy is immortal, what can we do with that? Implications? He became a richer character. Also, in thinking about this, I I do need to correct something that I said last time. It is possible that I've read another issue of The Ray before, and certainly an issue of JLTF, but they may have been Underworld Unleashed issues, which may not have necessarily been the best introduction to the concepts or the titles. Our great buddy from across the pond, Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, thanked me for another fine episode. 
I read the first Ray miniseries and loved it. But having tried the first couple of the ongoing, never continued. So this one is new to me, and I have to say, your comments were spot on, very fair. Priest's comics invariably contain great scenes with intriguing characters, but they just don't tend to work as individual comics. You have to have the collections. His recent Deathstroke run, for example, which is smart, cutting edge, and pretty much indecipherable on an issue-by-issue basis. This particular chapter is a frustrating collection of enigmatic scenes, and it's not good enough to assume only a small but loyal audience is reading. Who's Josh? What JLA task force business? Who's the sexy gal snogging him? Longtime readers, such as us, should be able to work out enough of what's going on to make the experience worthwhile. And the art isn't great either. Plus that cover with the window designed as a coffin, it's not a grabber. DC had a hit character with Jaxie Harris and Joe Casada's Ray, but they really fumbled the ball over time. Well, thank you, Mark. It's nice to have an affirmation when I feel like I'm out on a limb with an opinion. Mark sent a link for a 2017 blog post of his where he did a quick review of the 2017 Rebirth version of the Ray. And if I remember, I will put a link to that in the blog post for the episode. Manuel Carmona let his buddy Alvaro know about this episode of the podcast since he was the only Ray fan that Manuel knows. And Alvaro said he uh, still has that run. LOL, I have to reread it, but I remember liking it okay. Sir Luke wrote in with his thoughts on the issue and on this era of DC Comics. Professor, unlike yourself, I was reading comics in the mid to late 90s, having only gotten into them for real in 1991 or 1992. I was at least familiar with the Ray, as he did get a decent promotional push from DC. Mostly, I recall, relating to the art of Joe Quesada, then a hot up-and-comer. However, I can say without fear of contradiction that you do have an edge on me in one category. You, Professor, have read more issues of The Ray than I have. (laughs) It strikes me that a lot of the 1990s era of DC, hip-deep in the post-crisis period, was what I would call insular. The creative team seemed to generally believe that they had a regular audience and were moving away from doing recap narration or thought balloons. My main reading from DC in this era was Superman, with the four titles functioning essentially as a weekly comic. Those books rewarded loyal reading with deep characterization, long subplots, and then modern storytelling. But it is Hard to pick up a random issue of Superman from that era and not feel like you are missing something. Thanks for the coverage and hope you and your family had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's, Sir Luke. Thank you, Luke. I think we did have a pretty good Christmas and New Year's. M wished for a white Christmas and got one. And we even got a white New Year's Eve as well. You know, I... 
I understand the value of the ongoing soap opera story concept in comics from the publisher perspective. They need us coming back every Wednesday to pick up the latest installment of our stories. There is certainly no reason why the publisher should care about the used comic market, except in the sense that back issues help their distribution nodes stay in business. But as a reader, it would be nice for the back issue bins to be filled with done and won stories. One of the key things I look for in back issues are those two little words in the bottom of the last box of the issue. The end. (laughs) Chasen in Hawaii retweeted the episode, noting that we were voted the number one podcast in the North Pole. That seems reasonable, actually. Thank you, Jason, for continually sharing the aloha spirit. And Michael T. Geist shared his experiences more generally with the hunt for cheap comics than on any particular issue. And we always like to hear your searches for cheap comics. This is a safe space for those stories. Michael said, Professor, I haven't been able to go to my LCS since the beginning of quarantine. They do deliver now. But I made it to the local thrift shop today and picked up this collection of six reprints for just $1.50. That's the closest to a quarter bin that I think I'll be seeing any time soon. Michael posted the cover and contents of the collection in question, which was an X-Men book, and I counted seven stories. So you're closer to 21, 22 cents. Very impressive, Michael. And let that be a lesson to all of you. Cheap comic books can be found if you know where to look. Social media love for last episode came from Ranger Gord of the brand new Prairie Justice podcast. Randy Watts, Vic and Phoenix, Karen from Between the Pages, James Williams from Karen, Paul from the Collected Edition, Chris Willett, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Billy D from Into the Weird, Carl Disley, Mike, at Send Aliens to Me, Baby Skeletor, Paul the Book Guy from The Book Guy Show, and more recently, the Knight Rider cast. Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Kirk Spencer from the DC Everything Else podcast, Chris Lydon, Pat from The Long Box Crusade, Dave's Comics Heroes blog, Sean from Secret Wars and Beyond, and our continued ongoing listeners of the year, the kind and lovely Sutherlands, from the Rad Adventures Network. So let's take a break, play a promo here, and when we come back, I'll be looking at Spider-Man Magazine number one. A World on Fire. An All-Star Squadron podcast. Join your host, Billy D. And Herman, as we take a deep dive into the seminal DC comic series created by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. We'll be covering the series issue by issue, spotlighting our favorite characters. And talking about the historical tie-ins as well. So join us every month in 
a World on Fire and All-Star Squadron podcast. Coming in December 2020 to a podcatcher near you. And we're back. Spider-Man Magazine number one had a cover price of $2.95, meaning I got this at a nice discount of, well, you remember last year, year and a half ago when I uh, experimented with covering reprints that I bought for 50 cents, but had two reprinted issues in them? And if you remember... That went over really well. There was not a single complaint at all that I paid attention to. So, I took that concept to the logical extreme, and I paid, sit down shag, a dollar for this book. But, it contains four complete reprinted issues. So, each and every one I am counting as its own separate quarter bin books. And I think it's important here in 2021 that we not quibble about those picky details, okay? We're friends. Let's just relax and enjoy the episode. In terms of of how I chose to cover these issues, I'm actually not going to go in the order that they're presented in the magazine but in the order of the original publications. And since we have four, not going to be quite as in-depth as I normally am in terms of covering a specific issue. So we start here with the early days of Spidey. We're going back to the early days of Marvel, truth be told, with the amazing Spider-Man number 16. Originally cover dated September 1964, before I was born, with a cover price of 12 cents. So my 25 cent overhead allocation to this issue represents a 108% premium paid for that cover price. Although I guess that actual copies of ASM 16 probably go on eBay for a little more than a quarter, so I suppose it all shakes out okay. Okay, I couldn't resist the siren call of internet browsing, and the cheapest copy of ASM 16 that I found was a copy rated 0.5. I do not know what that means in terms of comic book grading, but I suspect that might represent an issue that has been run through a shredder twice. And that issue was $5. Uh, although a digital copy is available at Marvel through the digital app for a buck ninety-nine, So actually, maybe my $0.25 cent allocation is pretty good, actually. All that having been said, let's get to the story Duel with Daredevil, which was scripted by Stan Lee with art by the inimitable and enigmatic Steve Ditko. We start 
with an excellent full-page splash. This reprint comic does not have the original cover art included, but this is the era here, 1964, when the first page of a story pretty much served as a secondary cover. So let me describe this page. We have Spidey flipping upside down, fighting a bunch of colorful troublemakers. Under the title, Duel with Daredevil, we are given this additional subtitle, also featuring the unique villainy of the Ringmaster and his circus of crime. We are promised action, thrills, suspense, all on the inside. So why wait? Let's jump right inside. And we start with Aunt May giving Peter a hard time for not calling Mary Jane Watson and setting up a blind date with her. In order to get some peace and quiet from his nagging aunt, Pete heads out as Spider-Man and notices a gang of toughs holding bags of money who see a blind man nearby and worry that he might be able to identify them from their voices. So they try to beat up this well-dressed fella. Turns out to be a lawyer. None other than Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil. Fortunately, Spider-Man sees the poor blind man in his plight, steps in, and rounds up the criminals. And all of that gives Daredevil some great clues about Spidey's identity. I'd say he's about 17, 5 foot 10 inches, and judging by the sounds of his pulse and breathing, in excellent health. Foggy and Karen are waiting for Matt in the law office, and after some soap opera thought bubbles, they invite him to go to the circus with them. Mr. Murdoch, you work so hard. You need some relaxation. At the circus, the ringmaster and his crew prepare the final touches in terms of their preparation, advertising the hashtag fake news that Spider-Man himself will show up for charity to lure more people into their trap. Spidey sees the posters and feels obligated to go. So he does, but not until disappointing Betty by not inviting her. The show begins, and much to the crowd's delight, Spidey performs an acrobatic show like no other. As Spidey's show winds down, the ringmaster uses his hat to hypnotize the web-slinger to not stop him, and then hypnotizes the entire crowd. The rest of the circus of crime moves among the crowd, collecting wallets and jewels. Well, not the entire crowd because the blind Matt Murdock is immune to the hypnosis. He slips away to return all decked out in that iconic yellow and brown outfit of Daredevil. These are the early days of this character. Ringmaster can't understand why Daredevil can't be hypnotized, so orders the hypnotized Spidey to fight him. And after a good but brief battle... Daredevil grabs the ringmaster's hat with his super cane and manages to release Spidey from the spell. And then the two heroes work together to take down the entire circus of crime with some pretty great acrobatic and athletic moves. By the time Spidey releases the crowd from their trance, Matt Murdock is back in his seat. Spidey wonders how Daredevil, whoever he was, 
remained unhypnotized. It all happened so suddenly that only a blind man could have been unaffected. Naturally, that can't be the answer. Ableist. After the hypnosis is removed from the crowd and the police arrive, Matt naturally offers his services as a defense attorney to the now-arrested ringmaster. The end. Let me just say that this one was a delight to read. Now, the circus of crime are not the world's greatest villainous team, but they're a great concept for a comic book. And Steve Ditko does an excellent job showing the dynamism and athleticism of Spidey and Daredevil battling the circus. We get lots of trapezes and tightropes and nets and platforms. Excellent uses of all the things that you would find under the big top. And the team-up itself was fun. There was enough of each character's world, each character's supporting cast, for them to feel like each one of them got a fair share of focus and of the action. And it took some hypnosis to make it happen, but they did start out with the common trope of fighting each other before moving on to fight the actual bad guys. And each character gets their own soap opera moments. We get one of many, many references to Mary Jane before her first appearance. And then Pete causes a scene with Betty at the Bugle. While across town at Nelson and Murdoch, Matt is hesitant to go to the circus because he doesn't trust his feelings for Karen and doesn't want to see her socially to get in the way of her and Foggy. And also props to Matt for hustling for business at the circus after the arrest. Got to be aggressive on the sales front, man. I love it. (laughs) And I love the idea that both of these heroes have some clues about the other. Daredevil uses his powers to get some key info about Spidey's age and his height. And Spidey tumbles onto the idea that blindness would protect against the ringmaster's visual-based powers. But he dismisses it, even after seeing Matt, or as he thought Bubbles, the blind man I helped last night, at the circus. He saw Matt at the circus, the blind guy. He actually knows there's a blind guy at the circus. And even when he sees Matt as the circus starts, his spidey sense goes off. But he convinces himself that he just imagined that. He certainly can't present any sort of threat to me. Oh, the irony. So close, Spidey. So close. The only major drawback I see here is the ringmaster's hypnosis power and the manner of how that worked. You know, that's just baked into the character, but still, even in a world of blind superheroes and radioactive spiders, that was a little unbelievable. But that quibble is so minor compared to the action and adventure and fun and dynamism of this story. Really good story, really good team-up. And speaking of team-ups, next, at least chronologically, next we have Marvel team-up number one, cover dated March 1972, with an original cover price of 30 cents, So a very minor 16% price break. Have yourself 
A Sandman Little Christmas is a sprig of marvelous mistletoe. Written by Roy Thomas with art by Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito. We start on the ocean shore on a cold Christmas Eve day. Peter Parker is covering the annual polar bear plunge. But instead of a boring human interest assignment, this turns surprisingly interesting. As a woman shouts that something brushed her legs, it's some kind of snake or a tentacle. It is a tentacle, but a tentacle made of sand that shapes into something sinister. I know who he is. He's the Sandman. Police officers rush in from the boardwalk to subdue Sandman. There is still a warrant out for his arrest. But the cuffs go right through his arms. When the villain squeezes the air out of their lungs, Peter makes a quick change into our title hero, and Spider-Man springs into action to skirmish with Sandy only to have him merge his body with the rest of the beach, leaving me with nothing but empty webbing. Petey swings away from the scene because he has a date with Gwen. But before he gets there, he finds himself under attack from flame rings. As he falls, Spider-Man stops himself by adhering to the Baxter building. There, from a window of the building is Johnny Storm, a.k.a. the human torch of the frivolous four who apologizes for the incident. Spider-Man tells him about the Sandman fight, and the torch tells the tale of when he last tangled with the villain. Together, they look for Sandman in the Fantastic Car, an older version of the flying car Spider-Man points out. He is not impressed. During the search, Spider-Man disrupts what he calls a minor league robbery, a couple of toughs who are trying to steal Christmas presents from Misty Night. While the boys continue to banter, the torch saves some folk from an out-of-control cement truck sliding across the icy streets. Soon, they spot the Sandman near Mackland Industries. Each hero tries to take on the villain individually, as Torch throws rings of fire at Sandman. He grabs Spidey and throws him into a wall, dazing him. Sandman then sandblasts the Torch while Spidey's head clears enough to spin a web net to catch the falling Torch. Both of them charge the villain only to be knocked out cold as Sandman changes into a brick wall at the last second. The pair wake up inside a water tower, the torch coming to first. He burns off their binding and manages to get them out of the water tower before they drown. They catch up to Sandman as he enters a two-story bungalow. Inside, they find him dressed in normal clothes, nice clothes, visiting his mother for Christmas. He promises to go along peacefully after the visit, and Spidey and Torch agree to let him have some holiday time with Mom. Spidey keeps a lookout outside, and Torch waits for him inside. But realizing it's been more than enough minutes, Spidey enters the house and finds no sign of Sandman, who has escaped through the bathroom drain. They decide to let him go to give him a break. 
it's Christmas Eve after all. As they fly their separate ways, Torch fires up a message in the sky, peace on earth, goodwill to men. The end. There was a lot of fighting in this issue, lots of battles. But at its core, it was a nice, heartwarming holiday story. There was a nice recognition of the shared Marvel Universe here. Not just the team-up itself, which is one of Marvel's oldest cross-title, I was going to say friendships. I guess it's mostly a friendship of the teen male variety, perhaps. But it speaks to that time early on in the days of Marvel, when Spider-Man thought he'd give it a shot to invite himself onto the Fantastic Four. So very early on in both characters' careers, it was clear that they occupied the same space. And of course, since then, Johnny and Peter have had a friendship, I guess? (laughs) Here, they had great banter, Torch and Spidey. First, Peter makes fun of the old-fashioned, older model of the fantastic car that they're flying in. I I mean, the kid is in a flying car. And he's complaining about the styling of the flying car. That's classic. And along the way, the two of them go back and forth. Spidey offers to pay for gas. He calls Torch a firefly. Torch threatens to drop him off in the heart of Newark. Or maybe just the first spider web he finds. To me, that is spot on the relationship between these two characters. Rivals. Friendly rivals. And together. They do share the same deep-down heart for heroism. And when they needed to, they actually worked together well, got their powers working in sync when needed. And here, we get a bit of backstory on the Sandman. Now, eventually, Sandman's history will be fully revealed. And it's pretty good, pretty deep, pretty interesting. And maybe right here, we just get a hint of that with his tender-heartedness towards his mother. Now, of course, every villain has a mother, or did at one point, and most people with mothers are kind of soft-hearted towards them, so it's not a surprise that Sandman would feel thusly about his mom. But in comic books, at least superhero comic books circa 1972, bad guys were still, more often than not, bad guys, capital B, capital G. They didn't have mothers, and if they did, they didn't go visiting them on Christmas because they loved them. That's not the way villains behaved. Now, I'm not saying that Sandman was the first baddie to be thus portrayed, to be softened, to be humanized, but I'm saying that this was probably an early version of that idea. And certainly, that Marvel was light years ahead of their distinguished competition in giving the bad guys just a bit of humanity. Of course, he does lie to them and escapes. I mean, he is a bad guy after all. We do have to remember that. Uh, One other bit of continuity, or technically it's ret continuity. I mentioned the Misty Knight reveal that she was the woman rescued from uh, muggers here with an arm full of Christmas presents. That is not revealed until a number of years have passed, all the way up to Marvel Team-Up 64. But overall, good team-up, good message, good banter, good action, good story. 
My only regret was that I wasn't able to talk about this issue, or at least this specific story, during December. Because it is a nice little Christmas tale. All right, that's two stories down. And it took a lot of talking to, uh, well, to talk about them. So let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll cover a pair of Spidey issues from the 1980s. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at Two True Freaks. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we're back. Again! And we're moving up about a decade to Amazing Spider-Man 224 cover dated January 1982 with a cover price of 60 cents finally a decent markdown of almost 60% and as we move to higher cover prices we undoubtedly move to lower actual current retail prices to reacquire those books on the open market The story, Let Fly These Aged Wings, was written by Roger Stern with art by John Romita Jr. and Pablo Marcos. We start with a full-page splash of Peter upside down, exercising in his apartment, and he's on the phone chatting with Aunt May, who is glad to hear her nephew's keeping in shape and says that her fiancé, Nathan Lubensky, had suggested it to her. She tells him that Nathan is in physical therapy today and invites Peter over for dinner on the weekend. After ending the call, Peter thinks about how happy he is that his aunt is in better health. With no classes until the afternoon, he decides to go out web-slinging. His spider sense directs him to a bank robbery already in progress. Spider-Man prevents the bad guy's getaway By webbing up the back tires of their car, he makes short work of the yellow masked thieves. After webbing them up for the police, he returns to the rooftops to recover his camera. If I'm lucky, 
Maybe my favorite publisher will even pay me half of what these photos are worth. Meanwhile, at Bellevue Hospital, Adrian Toombs, a.k.a. The Vulture, has been recovering from his latest rounds of Spider-Man-related injuries. The guard tells Toombs that he's impressed by the old man's recovery before making the tactical mistake of reminding him that once the doctors give him a clean bill of health, he is headed straight back to the Huskow. At PT, Toombs meets the aforementioned Nathan Lubinsky, who is soaking, therapeutically, in a hot tub, and the two old geezers chat. Nathan tells the supervillain, I mean, he doesn't know he's a supervillain, but he tells Toombs that he can still do plenty of stuff, and he shouldn't give up on any goal as long as he's alive. Adrian is surprised when he learns that Lubinsky is confined to a wheelchair. Lubinsky tells Toombs how happy he is at the Restwell nursing home, and how he has friends and a girlfriend waiting for him. Nathan chastises the doctor for treating him like a cripple the whole way back. Toombs is inspired by Nathan's words, and left alone with the components of the machines in the PT area, Okay, guess what he does? I don't think you'll get it. Did you guess that he'd fashion a crude version of his wings and use them to escape the hospital? If so, pat yourself on the back. You, my friend, have read a comic book before. (laughs) After crashing his way out of the hospital, Toombs proclaims that no one is going to stop him. Not even that infernal Spider-Man. Good job, Nathan. Really, excellent job. At the bugle, JJJ and Lance Bannon barge into the darkroom, ruining Pete's photos before they can develop. Bannon says there must have been a a short in the warning light before moving into the room to develop his own photos. JJJ lectures Peter about how tired he is of giving publicity to Spider-Man. Then Robbie Robertson comes barging in to tell Joan about the Vulture's escape. This is turning into a bad day for Peter, and I've got the sinking feeling that things will get worse before they get better. And on that point, he is correct. For right now, the vulture has recovered his costume and wings and goes on a days-long robbery spree. Back at his new place at the rest home, someone comes by and invites him to a poker game. At that moment, Spider-Man gives up his search for the Vulture so he can change back into Peter Parker and meet up with Aunt May and Nathan for supper. When Peter arrives at Restwell, Aunt May says that Nathan is playing cards in the rec room. And much to Peter's surprise, but not to yours, right? Because you've read comic books before. One of the card players at Nathan's table is none other than Adrian Toomes. Toombs recognizes the fact that Peter recognizes him as the famous escapee and quietly threatens him with a gun before shuttling him out of the rec room. Adrian knocks out Peter before changing into his vulture costume. And then suddenly, there's a knock at Adrian's door. Aunt May is looking for her nephew. And Toombs, who's wrapped himself in a blanket to hide his costume from May, tells her that Peter abruptly left, which really upsets her. 
And when the vulture turns around, Peter Parker is gone, and in his place is Spider-Man. The vulture is caught off guard, and the pair fight all across their retirement home. The vulture falls on old habits and grabs a hostage. But as soon as he realizes that he grabbed Nathan, he decides not to harm him. This is the man who convinced him to keep on living his life. The vulture shoves his new friend into Spider-Man and makes his escape. Spidey is unable to follow as he is surrounded by grateful Restwell residents. He does slip away and change back into Peter Parker after telling a man Nathan about how the vulture tied him up and Spider-Man freed him. The three of them sit down for family dinner. The end. Okay, let me say that generally... I don't like the vulture. I just think there are limitations on what you can do with a character with one not all that unique power, flight, and one overriding character trait. He's really old. That does not necessarily make for a combo of characteristics that magically throws off a million different potential stories. Now, I admit I haven't read a lot of Vulture stories, so I maybe talk it out my backside. I did read a lot of Spidey last year, but not a lot with this character, and certainly nothing, spoilers, as good as this one, because this one took the concept of the older villain and did some logical things with it. It had him at physical rehab, making friends with another elderly gentleman. The part about Nathan getting him to think positive, not give up, get back on the horse and all that. That was funny because of the irony of who Toombs is. Nathan misses the part about him being guarded because he's there on temporary release from prison. When the guard says those things about him, Nathan isn't paying attention or they're, they're distant from each other at those moments. So the old fellows strike up a conversation and a friendship. That's not out of the question. One of them giving encouragement to the other. That's not out of the question. It motivates one of them to reestablish their life of crime and... Okay, that part might not be quite as realistic. But the friendship and the invitation to come to Restwell to play poker. All of that seemed like reasonable, realistic conversation. And it was all good setup for what was to follow. It's solid, professional, top-level comic book plotting. It seems from the story that in the couple of days between busting out of the hospital and robbing the gold exchange and the diamond wholesaler, bunch of armored cars, it seems that Adrian has been admitted into Restwell because Nathan knocks on his door and invites him to the rec room. So I think that's where he lives now. Although it's only been, as the comic says, a couple of days and... Tombs is still an escaped prisoner. Now, a few years ago, we moved my father-in-law and brother-in-law from their house in Virginia to a retirement facility here in central Ohio. And there was process, paperwork, procedures, and there was a waiting list. Most of these places, to the best of my knowledge, have wait lists. Okay, maybe that wasn't the case in 1982. Retirement facilities like Restwell may have been newer as concepts. Not every senior was interested in those facilities. Maybe they didn't have waiting lists at the time. 
But of all of the suspension of disbelief you have to do when reading comic books, I tend to not have problems with the big things like radioactive spiders and cosmic rays. But it's the little things, like waiting times at a retirement facility and the lack of a background check that can bump me from a story. And there were certainly coincidences in this story. I tried to make light of them, seeing as they fell into the category of because comics. But those we can say are writing weaknesses. But kind of like the suspension of disbelief, I can give a story one coincidence. To some extent, without coincidence, we wouldn't have fiction at all. But it's the coincidences strung together in quick succession, that's when it becomes more of a problem. But those are minor, minor issues. This was a delightful story, a one-off with a beginning, a middle, and an end, including a villain I tend to not think of as particularly compelling, but this was quite a compelling story. The Vulture isn't necessarily a great villain in my mind, but this might be a great, it's certainly a very good and very entertaining story, good fun read. Which brings us to our final issue in Spider-Man Magazine number one, which is actually the very next issue in publication order, right after the one we just discussed. So this is Amazing Spider-Man 225, cover dated February 1982, still at a cover price of 60 cents. Fools Like Us was again written by Roger Stern, drawn by J.R.J.R., and this time inked by Bob Wyatchek. We start in New York's Bowery. It's not a nice place to be at any time, but in the wee hours before dawn, it's particularly bad. We meet a pair of feds on the hunt for the fool killer, a murderous vigilante who's been killing people he deems to be fools. And these two fellas got a letter from their target that identified them as fools. E pluribus unum. You have 24 hours to live. Use them to repent or to be forever damned to the pits of hell where goeth all fools. Today is the last day of the rest of your life. Use it wisely or die a fool. Now, I don't want to get all darkness to light on you. But that's not the most insightful theology. Unfortunately, the fool killer finds these guys and uses his laser to incinerate the two lawmen. With his latest victims dead, the fool killer then destroys the files that they had compiled about him to ensure that nobody can resume hunting him where they left off. Later, teaching assistant Peter Parker is lecturing a freshman class, frustrated that they don't know the answers to his questions. I hear you, buddy. I hear you. After class, English lit major Greg Salinger tells Peter that he was late for class again because the admissions office messed up his paperwork. Peter says his is not the only case he's heard and hopes they straighten things out before a student takes matters into their own hands. Peter heads home later, and despite his fatigue, his spider sense goes off and he sees a costumed individual climbing up the side of a campus building. As Spider-Man, 
he finds the fool killer menacing the campus registrar and leaps in to stop the attack. The fool killer sees he is outmatched and leaps out the nearby window and escapes, returning to his semi-truck slash hideout. Fool killer flashback panels his career, almost like he would do if he were in a comic book. He recalls the Man-Thing adventure with the original fool killer and how this led to his taking on the title using the original Fool Killer's equipment to wage his own crusade against the Foolish. His strategy now is to wait for fools to interfere with his life so he can dispatch them more easily. So the next day, Peter Parker heads to the Bugle and sells photos of his battle with Fool Killer to Robbie as JJJ is handling a union dispute. Robertson is disappointed that Peter is selling photos of a failing Spider-Man, telling him that he's above that. No need to stoop to the same level as JJJ and Lance Bannon. Peter learns more about the fool killer, chatting with Robbie, then changes back to Spidey to keep searching for the villain. But he finds nothing. So Spidey goes to ESU for his next class, And as he changes clothes in a closet, his spider sense goes off. Peeking outside, all he sees is student Greg Salinger and wonders what could be setting off his senses. Greg complains about his paperwork not getting figured out and Peter comments about the fools in the mailroom. Greg storms off. Oh, Peter, what have you just done? Peter finds fellow T.A., Deborah Whitman, in an angry mood, turns out that Greg Salinger had been there, and he ended up calling her a fool and storming off. Suddenly, Peter, a few pages behind the rest of us, even though he's a genius and we just waste our time reading comics, Peter puts two and two together and realizes that Salinger is the fool killer. This leads to a showdown in the ESU mailroom, Greg knows that he is outmatched, so he flees, and Spidey follows him back to his trailer. The wall crawler rips the place apart, but the fool killer flees to an alleyway, where he's distracted by the screams of a homeless woman. As he threatens her, Spider-Man gets the drop on him and webs him up, and then the last few panels our hero promises to take the fool killer to a place where he can get the emotional help he needs the end now i was unable to come up with a mr t joke that i felt comfortable working into that synopsis so feel free to just make up your own i pity the fool reference okay now weirdly i've read a lot more fool killer than i have say, The Vulture. Like I said, I've only read a handful of stories with The Vulture, but I've read at least 10 issues of Fool Killer in early 2019, because of course The Fool Killer had a series in 1990. I think it was Ron Sadowski from Dinner for Geeks who sent me an issue, and then I picked up more from Cheap Bins after that. And it was an interesting series, not great, but interesting trying to stay true to the Steve Gerber origin of the first Fool Killer. 
Now, if I remember, that series from 1990 featured a third version of the character, not Greg Salinger, but someone else taking on the mantle and the mission. And I've got to say, for all of the possible characters to have a history of legacy, the Fool Killer may be the most unexpected. Sure, he's sort of like the Punisher, but you kind of have to squint to see the similarities. Or maybe it's just the simplicity of the Fool Killer's mission that has, I'm sorry to say, some level of appeal. We've all run into fools before, and sometimes we've wanted to... I mean, not to this extent, but we've wanted to retaliate. Now, I have to say, in this version, in this issue, the Fool Killer's outfit is amazing. It's a full black bodysuit type thing with a silver belt, like holster for his laser gun, and an epic black hat with a red or purple scarf tied around the hat, flowing a good three to four to five feet behind him. So he doesn't have a cape exactly, but he has a cape equivalent. And between these last two issues, The Vulture and The Fool Killer, I do see why Stern and J.R.J.R. are popular creators, highly thought of. These are action-packed stories, dynamic fights, lots of subplots and side characters. They are a little long-winded, certainly compared to more modern stories. But I found that that's often the case for Marvel Comics from this era, the late 70s and early 80s. You're here in the second generation of writers past Stan, but some of his bombastic uh, bombasticity is still part of the Marvel writing DNA. But they don't seem dated. Ironically, they hold up better than stuff from 10 to 15 years later. Stuff from the heart of the 90s. This stuff from the early 80s actually does, as I said, often hold up better. I think I liked the prior issue more, The Vulture, but this one was pretty solid too. Again, a done-in-one. And it's one that stuffs a pretty good amount of material into it. Okay, that was a fun quartet of stories. I originally thought that I would rank the stories, like from most enjoyable to least enjoyable within the collection, something like that. But that was assuming there'd be some real clunkers in here. And there weren't. I enjoyed all four of these to varying degrees. Thought they were all pretty solid. And that is definitely going to affect my verdict on this issue. The verdict on Spider-Man Magazine number one Well, to be fair, I probably shouldn't rate this entire issue as a whole, because unlike the Marvel magazines that I covered in the last couple of years, I did not pay a quarter for this issue. But I paid a quarter for each of the four comics inside. But that's okay, because all four of these, each one of them, was well worth its 25-cent allocated, allotted overhead cost. So four, count them, four quarter bin deals. Now let me say this perfectly clear. I need all listeners to hear this. I do not endorse, and I am not encouraging, the wanton spending of a dollar 
for just any book you find in dollar boxes. By no means. But if you find this book, reprinting four individual quarter-worthy issues, I'll allow that. And that wraps up my coverage of Spider-Man Magazine number one, bringing episode 163 to a close. Next time, we're looking at one of the great team-up titles of all time, The Brave and the Bold 130, from DC Comics, cover dated October 1976. And if all goes according to plan, the episode itself will be a team-up. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode Spider-Man or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.